Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Ian Smith, company's editor. How are you, Ian? Not too bad, John. How are you? I'm wonderfully well. <laughs> Harriet. <laughs> Harriet Russell, how are you? If I'm you good. can hold back the laughter, I know. I'm sorry. That was uh, that was emphatic did, from you. Did it feel like I didn't mean it entirely? A tad insincere. You mean never? Yeah. No, I do. I feel all right. Good. I'm just a bit tired. That's all. See, <laughs> <laughs> I was so tired last night after press day. I got on the wrong train, and I ended up in Billericay. And I had ten minutes to get back to Shenfield to make a connection. And thankfully, I found an obliging cabbie. When did you realise you were on the wrong track? At Billericay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and That's then, even worse than falling asleep on the train. And then, and then I'd bought some sushi for me and my missus before I uh, got on the train. And when I got home, and she's vegetarian, and I and I ate half of it before. I, I think they're funny tasting vegetables. But it was duck. <laughs> <laughs> she was sitting there about to put it in her mouth. Stop. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> this, this is this is this is what we go through. The investors' chronicle. It's a tiring process, and it caught up with me last night on the way home. Anyway, so that's why that's why I may sound somewhat insincere. Okay, right. It's been a busy week. Uh, Harriet, lots on the retail front, which we're going to talk about. Yes. Surprisingly busy results beat this week, even though it's not supposed to be. It's not, and actually, this next magazine, the one after the one that is being published uh, on Friday, uh, it will be very quiet on the results front. So, yeah. And then we'll have another results surge uh, in mid to late November. Yeah, well, next week is, uh, which is okay, because next week is our investment trust special where we basically, uh, the, the funds team goes through their pick of, of what they really like in the investment trust sector. Um, we do it every year. Um, in fact, Algie Hall, uh, via the wonderful medium of Twitter, has had not one but two people ask him if he can update his round the world investment trust screen. I hear we're sending him on a hot air balloon this year. Yeah, John, he, to stop off at every place where the investment trust is he, based. He is the Phileas Fogg of the investment trust world. And I, I think he referred to you as Passapatoo, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and I was happy to oblige. <laughs> okay, right. Uh, so apart from who is uh, Britain's uh, greatest uh, vocalist of all time, uh, which we've been discussing uh, in the office ad nauseum, and we won't discuss on the podcast. <laughs> and it's not seen on and, Twitter anyway. And it's not Tom Yorkian. Um we're going to discuss what's in the news. So uh, seven days, let's start with that. What was quite interesting coming out of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, is that the amount of cash held by investors globally is near a 15-year high, which plays perhaps into what we were discussing a little bit earlier on um, and what you can see from our data page, which is that valuations are very high uh, in equities and perhaps uh, there is some uncertainty from investors about exactly where to put their money. Uh, so the major worries uh, cited by these investors for, not, uh, for holding their money in cash were well one was European Union disintegration so some worries around that another was a bond market crash and thirdly a Republican election victory in the US which seems very unlikely which it seems very unlikely to happen Um, but both equities and bonds there's fears um, over the prices of those instruments Um, so uh, fear is maybe a strong word. Um, no, I don't um, think only, so. Only encouraging it. Uh, but it's interesting that you're seeing some of this concern and a lot of investors holding their money in cash. And you could possibly link that to the IPO story that we have in the news section where some of those IPOs that were planned are now not going ahead and others have gone ahead at cut pricing. So obviously there are is some concern from investors about getting into certain businesses yeah, so Biffa, for example, the waste management specialist, and we've talked about them on this podcast a couple of times. Didn't get anywhere near its uh, its targeted valuation, did it? 
No, exactly right. So Biffa, I think its targeted valuation is around 220 to 270p. Um, I think it IPO'd at 180. Mm. Um, so That's a long way short. That's a long way short. I think maybe there was concerns about the amount of leverage in the company. What the ex-private equity, I presume. Yeah, and so if you compare that with a good uh, story in terms of IPO, uh, Luceco, which is an LED lighting specialist, makes kind of down lights. Also makes uh, some plug sockets that have USB uh, ports in them which are pretty smart. I've seen a photo of those. Yeah, well, the, you know what? They're everywhere. I, uh, I've been thinking about installing some myself. But as it happens, I have uh, chargers, which I already have uh, USB capabilities, so I haven't done it yet. But I, 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 I knew you wouldn't disappoint if I brought this up. They're, one of their main <laughs> clients is Screwfix. Uh, yeah, that's where I've seen them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd imagine that would have been the case. But um, yeah, that's an example of a business where... Um, the IPO range, pricing range was 115 to 145p. It started at 130p, and as we came downstairs, it was about 155p, so above that range. Yeah. Um, so, and that's a quite an interesting company as well because it's making the products in Shanghai at this factory, and then it's selling them to you know Tesco, Screwfix, B and Q. So you would say, um, in some ways, it's, it's on the wrong side of the uh, currency problems that we've had right because it's selling in pounds um and uh, its costs are in you know overseas currencies so that's quite interesting that it it's not necessarily the businesses that you think would be struggling are struggling but maybe it's just that they this is a very strong market they have um yeah strong customers and strong demand from mr human yeah well i didn't buy them yet Yet. Uh, I have bought lots of LED lighting. It does actually save you quite a bit of money yeah. on, uh, on your, your electricity bill. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's quite interesting. And we've also had TI Fluids um, pulling its plans for a float, um, Pure Gym as well. And um, another float that's been planned, Mysis, software giant. I think there's been reports that they might be reducing the pricing for that. Um, so, yeah, it's a real mixed bag at the moment. So maybe that plays into the same kind of uncertainty from investors. Yeah, but, um, but I mean, the markets themselves have not looked weak. Well, that's what is quite curious, I find, about this. I find it very curious. I mean, you know, the FTSE 100 is pretty, it's still, you know, tantalisingly close, hovering around that, that record all-time high. Uh, although some people would suggest... In inflation-linked sense and in currency-linked sense, it's not anywhere near an all-time high. But it looks it on paper. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm just not quite sure is it the top? what, what these tough market the conditions are. Are, what are. Are people concerned that, you know, they'll, that they'll be buying into these businesses at the top of the market? If they're worried about valuations becoming stretched, if they're worried about all-time highs, as you say, then maybe they don't want to kind of pour their kind of money into these businesses at stretch valuations. Yeah, I can I can understand that. That's pure kind of speculation, but that that was an interesting story in the seven days. Elsewhere, um, Tesco, uh, and we can talk a little bit about Tesco. I made it the... Um, we talked a lot about Tesco last week. Yeah, we so can, uh, maybe we've talked not as much. We can talk a little bit about Tesco. I'm sure I bored everyone senseless with my Marmite tales last week. So they've grown their market share according to Kantar World Panel data for the first year-on-year market share gain since 2011, um, which definitely plays into the Tesco recovery story that a lot of people are um, arguing at the moment. Harry, what do you think about Tesco? Is this is this a recovery we should be buying into? And uh, you've actually got some thoughts on this as well, haven't you? Yeah, Ian and I have the same thoughts, which I think is quite handy. And given that they had results and then the Unilever thing, they have been a hot topic. And so Ian and I have been talking about them a lot. And my initial take, obviously, we, we get the results and we have to make a fairly quick decision about which way we're going to go with it is that this recovery is priced in basically Mm -hmm. 
uh, if you want to put a strict sort of valuation on the shares, then then they look pretty full. And they always have done, really. Since the 2014 accounting scandal, they went way down. They were cheap for a minute. <laughs> but ever since then, they've really been pretty expensive. And, you know, it's difficult because a lot of people would say that this is one of these instances where a PE ratio tells you very little about future share price performance because the upside has been massive. Um, and also because the earn, the margins are recovering, right? It's a margin recovery story, exactly. So there's a lot of argument out there that actually you should be using a different metric, an EV to EBITDA or something like that would be, or EV to sales even might be a more indicative uh, metric to use at this point. But Ian has gone into much more detail this week in his column about five reasons not to buy Tesco. Yeah, so so you mentioned EV to sales in that, uh, in the valuation argument, and I mean, they don't look particularly cheap on that measure. No, not according to the global peer group that's on Capital IQ. Uh, I looked at, I suppose the reasons that I looked at here are more medium-term reasons, so it's not saying in the next six months this is going to out, but I do think... But I think, I think that's the right time frame upon which you should perhaps start to think about investing, not not like, what's it going to do in the next six months? Yeah, exactly right. So I, I would kind of move away from, yeah, is that right now, that valuation exactly? right yeah it looks pretty bang on the peer group average if you look at ev to sales is, is um, it partly because the whole peer group is depressed yeah potentially uh, i do think that it's also because the share price has recovered quite strongly so it is priced for a recovery in the margins and it is priced for some sales growth um but I think a lot of the heavy lifting on the margin is going to be done by the cost cuts, which they've been quite clear about. And it's more difficult to see where the um, sales growth is going to come from. And that's something I went into in my piece alongside the questions over being kind of caught between um, the weaker pound and the desire not to increase sales, which kind of puts them in a tough position. Then you've got other things like the pension scheme. Should we talk? Should we talk quickly about pension scheme? That's also the topic of the cover feature, uh, which was written by one of your former colleagues from uh, Pensions Experts. Yeah, Tom Dines. Um, so it's really good to yeah use the expertise of Pensions Experts. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. It's very topical at the moment. We've had Rathbones today. Um, doing a share placing and saying the reason that they're doing so is to provide short-term capital in order to. Um, help shut down or close their defined benefit pension uh, entitlements. So it's quite interesting in terms of how is this affecting shareholders. We saw with Carclo the suspension of the dividend. And, and that's what's prompted us to, to have a look at this, uh, exactly. you know, over, having a chat with Tom over a pint one evening. Um, you know, we said, can you actually sort of start delving into other small companies? What, what he actually found with writing this feature was it's very difficult to actually pin it down. The, it's company, the companies weren't prepared to talk about it. Exactly right. And, um, and, and yeah, so, so we've tried to get some measures which are indicative of, 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 of you know, exposure to this problem, but it's been very hard to actually do that. You'd have to go into every company on a, on a really kind of individual basis and really dig into the accounts and the annual reports to find, to find these, these lurking problems. Yeah, exactly right. And even the accounting deficit, which was the thing that did for Carclo, the fact that that had um, widened enough that they were then unable to pay that dividend. Um, with Tesco, the accounting deficit widened. Uh, but if you bear with me, the more important thing in terms of what calculates um, where you calculate the employer contributions from is the three yearly valuation that's done. It's done on a slightly different basis. That's the regulated um, estimate of the pension deficit. So the big th- question with Tesco is more over the medium term. I think they're going to crunch the numbers in March 2017, but we won't find out until 2018 
what the situation was in March 2017. At that point, they'll be telling us what the outcome is of these revised negotiations around how much money the employer has to pay in. So there can be a huge lag effect with pensions. And I think that makes it very difficult um, to predict which of the companies that are going to struggle. Indeed. And I think, you know, the upshot of our feature is Tom does a very good job of explaining how the mechanisms work. I guess his expertise, pensions expert, is really, really shining through there. But, uh, you know, ultimately all we can say is you, know, you have to be very wary of companies where, where there is a potential pension issue and don't assume that dividends will keep growing or in the case of Tesco that they will return. Yeah, and it's a hidden debt alongside with Tesco. The other thing you have to look at are the leases, right? So, you know, these are both things that people say you can buy the balance sheet recovery story at Tesco. They've managed to reduce their net debt and that was one of the reasons people were very happy at the time of the results. But there is this pension issue and there are also these uh, these leases and those are hidden liabilities. Harriet, do you think the possibility of a, of a return to paying dividends is something uh, investors are hoping for in this, this Tesco share price recovery? Absolutely. I think that's always something that retail investors in particular are hopeful for. But I think at Tesco, it's it's still a while away. You know, the, the big thing that really secures dividend is massive cash generation. And at the moment, Tesco's got sort of a long road on that front. So, you know, you've only got to look at some of the other retailers, which I won't sort of bore you with now, but there are plenty where the cash generation is so good that specials are coming out, but it's only because of cash generation. There is one who reported some results this week that we'll come on to in a minute uh, when we talk about results. Uh, Booker. Booker. Let's talk about them in a minute. I guess one thing we can say that looks good about Tesco at the moment is management. Um, Absolutely. Dave Lewis... He he played a blinder against Unilever. Yeah, he really did. He really dug his heels in. And I think I put on Twitter actually on the day that this was a real PR victory for Tesco. As much as it was sort of more of a political issue than perhaps a sort of real PL issue, because we're never really, we can hypothesise all day about how far it would have gone. The fact is, it didn't go. So there you have it. But yeah, I think, I mean, he's a former Unilever guy, right? So we can assume that he has a fair amount of friends or ex friends at, at Unilever to sort of. Ex friends de- now, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, to debate this with and he knows the ins and outs of that company which is you know it's inherent to this particular situation which is helpful and you can't say that he would be able to be this tactical in if it hadn't been Unilever if it had been Reckitt Ben Kaiser or something like that but but, but I guess other suppliers now know you know this is a company that, yeah. that knows how to, how to negotiate hard and uh, he's kind of made Tesco something something of a formidable uh, competitor in, yeah, in that and respect. Yeah, tying it to this, the Brexit, uh, I mean, it makes it a complete people's champion. I mean, excellent, excellent work. But I mean, this, I suppose, more widely, you could say supermarkets don't want to do what they did after the Lehman Brothers crash and the financial crisis, which was pass on to customers through price rises um, the weaker pound and thus um, lose market share. Well, yeah, so they're totally very give rise to the discounters. I mean, it was their undoing in a way. So they're very, which puts them in quite a difficult position because they really don't want to cede market share in terms of bricks um, and mortar sales. So, yeah, I, th- I think a lot of the management teams will be fighting on exactly the same ground. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we bring this up in seven days as well. Tesco grew its market share uh, for the first time in a, in a while. It's always sort of had the largest market share, but that's really just down to scale more than anything else. Um, and, and it's on the rise again. So they must be doing something right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, you know, the fact that they, they don't want to pass on, uh, you know, these, these extra costs uh, to consumers, uh, the fact that you do have these formidable competitors uh, getting big all the time, Audi and Lidl, um, you know, knocking knocking on the door, you know, that does, that does make you look at the margin recovery story with a bit of a sceptical eye. 
At least on the food retail, I suppose on general merchandise, we saw the inflation figures that um, clothing sales, you'll see some inflation there. So it can be helpful for gross margins. It can be helpful. I, the, the thing about Tesco that I always sort of have a sort of wry smile about is that Morrison's really isn't doing that badly either. And yet David Potts gets absolutely no, <laughs> nowhere near the column inches that drastic Dave Lewis does. So, you know, I think... In terms of yes, you can credit management, but you know Dave Lewis isn't isn't the Messiah. He's not the second coming. I think you know David Potts doesn't get nearly enough credit. No, I mean, and old Mike Coop over at Sainsbury's. Well, he my, doesn't per- really- my personal favourite. But, yeah. you know. He doesn't, he doesn't really get the column inches either. No, but Sainsbury's isn't a recovery story. They haven't had a huge scandal to come back from. But I think there's a lot to be said for Sainsbury's in terms of treading water and holding on to its place in the market, which, you know, in a deflationary environment is really hard to do. And I think in terms of branding, actually, Sainsbury's is one of the strongest. But Morrison's and Tesco have a low base to come from, and that's always helpful. Yeah, shall we talk Booker while we're on the subject of food retail? Because uh, they had some, some good results this week. Uh, it's been a come, you know, even throughout the troubles of the supermarket industry, it's it's really held its own. And as you say, we returned a lot of money to shareholders and, and looks to do so again. Yeah, I mean, it's done this before. So Booker's almost establishing a pattern at this point for buying businesses that are going bad, buying them on the cheap, doing them up. And in order to buy them in the first place, it needs to borrow money from its shareholders. So it does so. It then turns these businesses around, generates an awful lot of cash out of them and hands it straight back to the shareholders, not only to pay their debt, but usually then to just say thanks. Yeah, and so so the current the current uh, turnaround stories there are Londis and Budgeons. Londis and Budgeons, yeah, they did it with Macro, which was a German business a few years ago, um, around twenty twelve, and 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 that paid off as well. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it looked. At, I remember when they bought that. Uh, you know, for the first six months or so, you know, people were looking at it saying, "Well, yeah, I think they may they may have got something wrong here." It was it was difficult. Yeah, and it's been the same again. I mean. Towards the end of last year, certainly beginning of this year, the like for likes in particular, I mean, that has nothing to do with acquisitions, obviously. But, you know, Booker was struggling, actually, especially at the top line. At that point, we re-tipped it because uh, if you go back and read that tip, the point that I really make is that Booker's P&L works like no other. In terms of what they can claw back in margins and cost recovery, the profits always grow. And in terms of earnings and being rewarded as a shareholder, that's that's what you kind of look for, particularly in a retailer, um, someone who can manipulate that stuff statement as as well as they can is something to praise but is it, is um, it still charles wilson who's in charge there yeah i mean he's yeah he, he's a, he's he knows what he's doing he's been there a long time hasn't he he now? has been there a long time um i think you know track records speak a lot in retail and it's always the reason that certain chief executives when they leave asos is a good example um they they also had results this week actually um you know when, when the chief executive or even a founder leaves you know it does rattle the market so i think the longer you can establish a track record and, and stay in place the better funny enough funny you say that um I finally got round to writing up the recent seminar we ran um, in uh, this week's magazine. Um, it's uh, unlocking the potential of growth investing. And a couple of the managers, we had two fund managers there, uh, Harry Nimmo from uh, Standard Life UK Smaller Companies and uh, Catherine Flood from Scottish Mortgage. And, you know, both of them looked at management longevity, uh, how long they've been in the job as a key measure of, 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 of the, the attractiveness of an investment. You know, they like to see that continuity and I guess that that's playing out here. It has planned out here. It doesn't always. I mean, there's always a you know a school of thought that says the average tenure should be five years and and all that. of this stuff. I don't but buy that. It, it, it's just it's very totally, arbitrary, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, it's just a stat at the end of the day, and you can debate it till high heaven. But I think in in certain businesses, particularly with something like ASOS, which let's face it, at the beginning of its lifespan was a startup. It was no better. Um, you know, it 
Nick Robertson saw that company through for, you know, almost, what was it, 12, 13 years? He that did, was, indeed. That was public life. He used to get a lot of flack, actually. He I did. Did. And, you know, I thought it was most undeserved because, really? because well, it's, I don't, you know, it's, really not, it's not up to him how, how, how investors react to, to what he's doing uh, and, 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 you know, pile into the shares and drive the share price up. He's just running a business. And I thought he ran it extremely well for many, many years. It's the most successful AIM stock in history. <laughs> indeed. I mean, sorry. <laughs> indeed. Um, so, yes, management longevity, we like that. And Booker is part of that story and returning a lot of money and still on the buy list. Absolutely. As well, I mean, ASOS, we can't actually really find a way to officially tip it because the valuation is always a bit eye-watering. But I have had it on a mini buy since the end of last year, which is when Nick Baton took over as chief executive, and it's done exceptionally well. As, as we also discussed at the uh, growth uh, seminar that we ran, you know, valuation, sometimes you've got to look beyond those those kind of uh, simple metrics that suggest something is expensive and look at how disruptive a company is within a particular industry. Absolutely. And Asos certainly has that in spades. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's what we were just saying about the Tesco recovery as well. Sometimes the market really gets behind a certain recovery story or a certain sort of momentum play, which is really what Asos is. It's not a recovery story at all, but it's just got such momentum. And I think there was a, there was a little bit of a jitter last year when, you know, Robertson stepped away and and the margins were sort of sliding and people couldn't understand whether that was going to be sort of indicative of bad news. But actually... They're making it work. It was reinvesting. It was you know, reinvesting it, in price, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, this is something that came out again in the growth seminar. You know, uh, Scottish Mortgage, one of its big holdings is Amazon. You know, and Amazon has cemented its position, not by, you know, kowtowing to shareholders throughout its, its uh, 20, 30-year history. 30-year? 20-year? God knows, time flies. Um, you know, but, but actually by, by, you know, taking the cash that it generates from certain very successful and established parts of the business and reinvesting it in new ones uh, uh, for, for the ultimate aim of an enormous payoff somewhere down the line. And I think that's true of ASOS as well. Yeah, absolutely. There was a little bit of a dip. The ASOS, we also cover that in um, this week's results section, but there was a bit of a dip on the day of the results. Do you think that was to do with these one-offs that we saw? Yeah, I mean... profit-taking, you also mentioned. We, I think there's, a, there's definitely an element of profit-taking, um, which, you know... Can't be said of Burberry. We might get onto that in a minute, but um, yeah, definitely an element of profit warning, um, uh, profit taking. Sorry, and I think also there was the problem with ASOS and the problem with high valuations. And I think you were talking about this earlier in the office, John. Is that the standards that some of these companies are held to are really quite enormous, and particularly in a sort of post-referendum environment as well. And so I was reading um, additional commentary in in the days coming after the results and they were saying that really they put it down to the fact that ASOS only expects growth of 20 to 25 percent in its top line this year how disappointing is that Mm, yes indeed (laughs) which sounds ridiculous to any other retailer who's struggling to get you know growth of I mean five percent would be good let's face it yeah wait but when when you as a management team um Create an expectation that this, these are the rates you're going to achieve, and then you don't. Then, then yeah. the market has has a right to be somewhat disappointed. I mean, and we've seen we've seen this, uh, Ian. Let's turn quickly to to the little flurry of profit warnings we seem to have had um, in the last uh, the last week. Uh, I mean, we've had Laird, we had NCC yeah. today, we had Senior, we had Keller. Um, some of some of that is really, essentially related to missing targets. Yeah, there are all company-specific things going on. But yeah, uh, m- much of it is to do with 
um, missed targets. So NCC we had today was some cancellations in its contracts, um, which are hard for um, anyone to foresee. Um, but unless you uh, say, as Algie Hall was saying earlier, our tips editor, that you, f- you need to look at the kind of quality of some of these contracts and, and decide whether you think there's likelihood that um, they are as strong as you think they are. Well, we- see, we talked about this in the office as well. Sorry to interrupt you, Ian. Um, the NCC has bought some companies recently. And actually, you know, not just NCC, but a lot of companies have, have been buying in growth. Um, and therefore, that's that's when you must look at whether there is a likelihood that some customers will defect at that point. Yeah, and, and NCC bought a business which it knew which was lower margin. Um, so that's one of the aspects there. Laird, which we cover in, in the news section, um, bought a business called Navero that now it thinks its due diligence is going to take longer than expected. But the main uh, issue that Laird was having uh, was uh, the performances of its performance materials business. So that is the protective casings that go into smartphones. So it's a very important um, supply chain company in Apple. What's quite worrying, I suppose, in this case is that you say, well, you'd probably say, well, I thought iPhone 7 sales were going quite well and the news flow around um, some of the Apple phone sales, at least, has been quite strong. Um, And Numis, uh, analysts at Numis, think that perhaps uh, the structural positioning of lead within the Apple supply chain might have um, might might be worse than it was before, so it's it's difficult, you know. For, for readers that have been put into the stock and they're thinking um, it's a sure thing, the relationship with Apple and it's diversifying away from that business. Well, it's still incredibly important. So big customer dependence then can yeah. be problematic. So if you know if that's the case with NCC and you know one or two contracts can, can cause it to miss its numbers, that's that's going on there too. Yeah, it's just it's, I suppose you could say kind of key client risk. And it's always been a big problem with small companies. Yeah, exactly right. So you know there's been quite a few. I mean we were talking earlier about what I mean Keller it was Asia Pacific weakness uh, with senior the aerospace industry for them was was weaker and the Flexonics was weaker because of the U.S. trucks market. So they're all very different things and we were talking earlier about what could be linking these profit warnings is it management exuberance is it investor exuberance or, pushing management on or yeah or valuations which are you know creating the expectations that that the earnings can can keep up with it you know are management having to to you know push hard in terms of the expectation they're creating just to keep up with the valuation are they looking at the share price a bit too much yeah exactly right it's, it's difficult to but if we start to see more and more of these we definitely have had a debate in the past couple of days but you don't know if that's just you know the random nature of corporate reporting extreme reactions to these profit warnings as well big falls Big Fools, which probably tells you, um, firstly, a bit about the growth um, expectations of investors uh, prior to the fall. Um, and then also when these things tell you something worrying about the business, so whether it's kind of the uh, strength of NCC's contracts or whether it's Laird's position within the Apple supply chain, these things will really worry investors. And then if there's, if there are also acquisitions that have been made that maybe aren't paying off as quickly mm. um, as previously thought, and we've just talked about that quite a lot, um, then yeah, you can see perhaps why the value is being destroyed. And perhaps just a reflection of the general nervous, nervousness out there that's causing people to keep the money in cash. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, right. Should we uh, should we talk about some results? Well, yeah, we talked exactly. about Booker, um, but Harriet, it's been a big week on the retail front. It has. They they do report traditionally a little bit later than everyone else, just because their year ends tend to be sort of January, February, rather than the traditional sort of calendar year. They like to include all the January sales and and what have you from post Christmas. So we always get a little bit of a flurry. Should Should we talk about Hotel Chocolat? Yeah, um, because of this, uh, because everyone likes chocolate. But also, <laughs> if, also it plays into that question we were talking about. 
eye-watering PE ratios and we had a bit of a discussion about this one this week Um, and I was minded to make the comparison with fever tree drinks which has always had a high ratio but it has backed it up. Very good comparison, Uh, a very uh, key holding of uh, Standard Life UK smaller companies which they mentioned specifically at their presentation because it's been it's delivered it's delivered and if you purely went by PE you'd never have bought into that stock over the past year or so no Um, but it does play into what they they talk about as quality uh, and also when you have earnings upgrades on a stock, then, you know, that share price is going to be kind of pushed high in a mechanistic way. And if the if the growth is there, I mean, all these things look great in hindsight. What Standard Life also talks about, what Harry Nimmer also talks about, as a key part of their philosophy is actually looking at some kind of thematic approaches. And, and they identify both Fever Tree and Cranswick. And I think Hotel Chocolat would fall into this as well as the premiumization of food. Yeah, I mean, this is actually a topic that I'm tackling this week for next week's issue. Um, although what that quite is, I'll keep under wraps for now. But yeah, it's definitely looking at this sort of upper end of the market. It's very similar to what happened in in the aftermath of the financial crash last time around, which was um, sort of the polar opposites of the market did really, really well. Obviously, you've got the rise of the discounters on the food side. But if you're talking about gen merchandise, then it was really the premium end that did very, very well. Um, and you always talked about this squeeze middle, which has now, I think, <laughs> entered as an official phrase into business vernacular but um but yeah and possibly the same is happening again market jitters consumer sentiment no one knows what's happening so suddenly the premium um retailers are are doing a little bit better i think what was really interesting for me was when i spoke to angus thurwell who's the chief executive over there was um i made quite an obvious question really i just said to him you know it's the first time i got to speak to him since the float and i said the obvious comparison here is not actually fever tree or any of these others yet it's it's thornton's and and what went before and he just completely shut that question down and he just said I suppose he didn't march you out the room (laughs) (laughs) No, he he was quite fair he was quite fair but he did say you know ultimately in terms of brand philosophy we could not be further apart and the brands that I want to sit alongside are Ted Baker and Fever Tree these are the two stocks that he pulled out of the air. And I thought that was interesting. That's an evening at John Human's house. <laughs> it is an evening. Sounds good, man. But um, um, I think what, my point being is that he's starting to think as a public company, which it shows to me that, you know, he's a, he's prepared. This management team is prepared. And uh, and my colleague, Megan Boxall, actually attended the AIM Awards and, and saw them win Newcomer of the Year. So it all looks pretty good. But if you want the shares, you are going to have to dig deep in those pockets. Yeah, but as I say, sometimes you look past the valuation because the, the quality of earnings growth is, is so good. Uh, yeah. and, and the growth story, I mean, they're opening new stores. Uh, as I understand, it got lots, lots yep. of planned. Yep. Yeah, that's the other thing, I suppose. Yeah, you can look at whether the earnings upgrades are coming. But another thing to look at with Hotel Chocolat is when they are beating analysts' expectations, the amount of store openings. When we were talking about this, and look at the net store openings, they, there is possibility that they're going to materially outperform in 2017, I think. But they, they, don't, they don't have a huge number of stores. So, yeah. so then it, it makes quite a lot of difference. Indeed. The, the opening program is not ludicrous. It's not overly ambitious. I think they're talking... Eight stores by Christmas, four during the reported period. That's, I mean, that's not a, no, an that, overly ambitious number. That was a net figure. So if you think about it, they've also closed stores as well. So I don't think they have sort of a prudish attitude to sort of looking at various sites and thinking which ones are underperformers that we can get rid of before it's too late. You know, I think management of the estate is something that until we, you know, the high street ceases to exist, which doesn't look likely in the short term, this sort of capital discipline in terms of, you know, openings versus closures is, is something not to be underestimated. 
Yeah, nice bit of online business there as well, which I didn't realise yeah. they had, I must admit. Oh, it's great. It's a really, really um, user-friendly website as well. I was browsing it yesterday to just sort of see, because like yourself, I, I'd, I'd not been on it before. And uh, yeah, it's great. Um, I'm, I was really impressed by it. So, A+. plus. Yeah. But hold. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ian did say to me, did you think about putting this on a buy? And I said, absolutely. But I just could not sort of mathematically get around the valuation. Um, in terms of upgrades, there is there is speculation, but it's still sort of 12-month-out speculation. Um, I've been burnt before. I mean, if you're holding the shares, if you bought in at the IPO, hold on to them. Absolutely. Okay. And if we can get that valuation squared, then... Uh... Well, if I can get it around Algie Hall, which <laughs> is more of a challenge than someone might think. Well, I'm going to have to remind him what he said at the growth seminar. And then in that case, it's about the peg ratio. If you could give him one of those lovely uh, earnings upgrade charts to yes, get off Bloomberg, yes. then, uh, then then I think you'll win him over. It's still very early days. Uh, in terms of IPO, you know, they IPO'd and Jules IPO'd in, in my sector this year. And so far, both of them are doing really, really well. So uh, it's not all doom and gloom on the new issues front. Yeah, let's talk about a company that that came back to market a couple of years ago now, maybe a bit more, uh, that had disappeared from the public markets because of a ludicrous expansion. Um, Game Digital, which was once just Game Group, um, which there was a lot of scepticism about when it returned to market. It had got into trouble because it had opened far too many stores. Uh, in fact, that was an acquisition that uh, went wrong. It ended up with two stores in a lot of towns, sometimes three, yeah. if, I, if I remember it rightly. Um, not looking good there. No, it's not. I mean, this is actually one of Theron's stocks, so he, so he wrote out the results. But, I, I mean, in terms of sort of, if we really want to talk about the value of a physical estate, and this is something that retailers debate endlessly these days with, with the online market growing as it is, um, there's, a, there's a lot to be said for game going online only, or at least that's that's the vibe that I get from Theron. But the problem is, yeah, they're trying to... I think they have quite a good understanding of what they want the business to be and investors probably have quite a good understanding of what areas of business they think work but at the moment they do still have these shops they do still have this business of selling older games older consoles which has been doing badly and the things that have been doing well are selling things like pre-owned smartphones and tablets as well, alongside the digital it's not it feels like a bit of a sort of porn <laughs> shop <to me. laughs> well, actually I went it's into like cash it. converters <laughs> well I mean if you go into these stores you do get a, a real sense of you know what are they actually trying to do what are they actually trying to sell you know pre-owned tablet pre-owned pre-owned games I went in there and bought a game actually uh, a couple of months ago which you blamed but, on me for well, having made you had a couple of pints <laughs> after work yeah yeah <laughs> I was, yeah, my own bizarre behaviour. But uh, it was, you know, the idea that you make a good margin of selling a second-hand game for four pounds that's just sitting on a shelf and taking up space, and then the thing, bit of your business that is doing well is selling pre-owned smartphones and tablets. You've got to think, well, the digital side is doing well, but it still feels like there's an awful lot of stuff that feels very, you know, retrospective. It's I I, I would not touch that with a barge pole. Personally, um, it's just leases again. Whenever I hear about leases and rental renegotiation, my heart just sinks. And we haven't even got to the stage where we, where companies, retailers will start having to declare those lease liabilities mm. through their accounts, which which could reveal some horrible hidden nasties. Yeah, I'm expecting major exceptionals once that comes through. Yeah, and you got the national living wage. I mean, that you're having to pay yeah. people more to staff these shops. Yeah, it doesn't feel like the future. 
No. But then, you know, one thing I would say, uh, one final retail story, WH Smith, that hardly ever feels like the future, but, it, you know, and the shares have not been great recently, but it's still still doing okay. Yeah, I mean, I think the phrase I used when people were asking me about it this week was limps, limps along, which is probably unfair in, in hindsight. It, I mean, I think we have discussed this on our upcoming retail podcast, which is in terms of a cost cutter, they're one of the best. Absolutely. They claw stuff out of that business day in, day out, and you've got to give them credit for that. But in terms of sort of, it's really a tale of two halves. It's travel versus high street. It has been for a long time. And so far, that story isn't changing. The market got terribly overexcited around Christmas when the high street um, numbers went up briefly. But if you're sort of looking on an annual basis, which we did this week, um, yeah, it's travel good, high street bad. Yeah, Do you know what? It's one of my kids' favourite shops. Yeah, I mean, And do you know why? Stationary. Stationary. Yeah. I mean, it's the, strong, it's the strongest category for them and it has been consistently. Um, and, you know, it's, it's quite a fascinating set of results to read because I think it's very sort of uh, study in sociology in some ways. Things like uh, what they say about ebooks, for example, I find fascinating. Um, and you would obviously, stationary is not a massive margin business, but in terms of volume. Oh, it sh- is the prices they charge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if you're buying fancy gel pens or whatever it is. But, you know, in terms of volume, the amount they're able to shift is, is really quite admirable but you can understand it because you can't really imagine going online to buy pencils can you paying delivery on pencils get them dropped in a drone into my garden yeah okay i'm not i'm not sure that's easier anyway uh hold (laughs) if you got them yeah um it's a real middle of the road valuation um i think it prices in enough of the travel but then it discounts on the side of the high street and what you end up with is 16 times forward earnings which is Bang on the sector average. Yeah. Hold it. Yep, yeah, hold. Uh, let's talk uh, about the couple of house building results we had this week. One of the major house builders, Bellway, looked good. Yep, Bellway looked good. Um, I mean, this is de- defying the, the kind of backdrop of Brexit-related uh, uncertainty we have, housing market uncertainty. Um, looks, yeah, I mean, the share prices are not great on these things, but... No, they, they sell off, sold off quite strongly after the referendum as people got very concerned about house price falls next year, possibility of a consumer recession. And then when the Bank of England then cut interest rates, that obviously buoyed them a little. And then we found we were finding out that, you know, the economic data is nothing like uh, some of the worst predictions just after the ref, uh, just after the referendum. So what it amounts to in terms of the housing market is that, forgive me, the readers that know this already, is that the new bill sector has been strong. Um, London obviously is a bit more mixed, but for Bellway, they are seeing uh, housing complaints rise Average sale prices are continuing to rise. They're replenishing the land bank. So, yeah, and, and crucially, referendum, little effect, as we've said here, um, reservations in the nine weeks from 1st of August were up 9% on the year earlier. I think so, what struck yeah. me was this return on capital figure. So we, we obviously ran that piece with SharePad recently looking at uh, valuations of house builders in detail and how you go about valuing them. Uh, and I guess what we were saying is that they, they look like they're at a peak in terms of, the, some, of the, some of the returns they're able to generate. But Bellway have just smashed through that peak. Yeah, and they're they're making kind of smart moves. They disposed a long-term holding in Barking Riverside, which was a capital-intensive project. Um, I think they had an option to kind of get rid of that. But at the same time, they retained an option to purchase some of those plots. So that, for me, feels like a deal that is just thinking about how to uh, deploy your capital wisely. So, yeah, I think they're they're doing a good job there. The other result we had was um, Inland Homes, and it's in-house kind of house builder is benefiting for the same reasons in terms of the average selling price increasing the total of homes that were actually sold during the year to 30th of June was actually fewer than 
the previous year, although the previous year was boosted by this kind of bulk sale. But it had a problem with its contractor. Yeah. Which is why it's trying to bring more of its construction in-house. Which makes perfect sense. So in terms of the long term, and again, the share price has shown the kind of similar shape, um, as you'll see here from, from after the referendum. And also on the other side of their business, which is selling consented lands to uh, house builders, that's going well. A strategic land bank is good, but also they're growing rental income from some of the sites they have, which are rented out for being to car parks or to filming companies. So yeah, there's a few different um, bits of income. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. We haven't talked Burberry. We tipped it last week, didn't we? Not a great start to that tip, but it's a buying opportunity in your opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we knew that they were going to have a general update, um, a first half update, I should say, um, shortly after that tip. What we didn't know, well, what they had promised is that the like-for-like sales would recover in that update. So we expected it to be a catalyst. And in terms of the like-for-likes, that absolutely did happen. They had a 2% growth, which was um, a lot more than what they've been having. Sadly, uh, no one had talked about it came as a complete surprise that the wholesale division um, is pretty awful. Yeah, it's, it's a US market problem. It's a US market Which problem. Which is not what you'd expect at all. Well, you say that. For the luxury market, the US has been tricky for at least two years now. Um, whether that's got anything to do with uncertainty around the election, who knows? You can speculate for days. But what, th- what is that? Trump might become president. I'm not buying a new handbag. <sighs> well, yeah. <laughs> We're leaving the EU, so you can't possibly go to Marks and Spencer's anymore. Right. It's the same sort of daft logic. Yes. Or maybe they've used up all the handbags in the presidential campaign. Ooh. Ooh, oh, very, very good. good. That sounded almost like a sexist joke, which is not as it was No, intended. I know what you meant. You know yeah, what I meant. Yeah, yeah, handbags not, um, at 50 paces yeah. Yeah, type yeah, thing. Exactly. Handbags yeah, okay. at dawn. Yeah, so it's a US problem. Um, and... Basically, Carol Fairweather, who is the outgoing chief financial officer there, really sort of disappointed people on the media call when she said that this problem will continue for at least two or three years. Um, that's, you never want to hear that. You? No, you don't. And that's why they fell so sharply, because really no one knew that was coming. I guess they at least they haven't run into the problem we talked about earlier, which is getting over-exuberance with their ability to, to, to <laughs> yes. turn that around. They are I mean, that's as gloomy down. as it gets. The so. reason I've kept it on a buy is that what I said at the tip a week ago still stands, which is what I think they need more than anything is um, fresh management at the top there, and that is still scheduled for early part of next year. So I'm not going to make any rash decisions until then. Um, in terms of you know a share price weakness, well, now you've got one. There you go. All right. Well, we've run out of time. So let me talk you through quickly what else we've got in the magazine. Uh, Algae stock screen this week, seven Dream AIM stocks. And guess what's at the top of the uh, the AIM tree there? Fever tree. Fever tree. tree. Come out flying with flying colours on his stock screen, um, followed by uh, Boohoo, which is uh, a little mini Assos. Yeah, one of so, my, again, thwarted tips, but um, yeah. Oh, see, he, does, he, he wants them for all for himself. I know, he ideas. wants the glory. The, uh, um, uh, <laughs> Theron, uh, Mohammed has taken a look at the telco sector and uh, how quad play uh, is affecting the investment uh, market there. As I say, we had uh, a couple of features from Tom Dines on uh, deficits versus dividends. Um, we also have the latest No Thought portfolios from Chris Dillo. Stories from Silicon Valley looking at uh, the rise of Facebook, Amazon and Twitter through the medium of book reviews. Uh, but done in a very kind of long and narrative kind of way, which is really great. It's a really good read. Long, but easy to read, is what we like. My uh, contribution to the magazine this week, apart from my rant about George Osborne's pensions uh, reforms, which I think were ridiculous um, in in, practi- in practical terms rather than in, in principle. Uh, I think they're ridiculous in both ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but also the, the right for the seminar. We've actually got another seminar coming up next week uh, looking at uh, build-to-rent property and another one the week after that on diversifying 
diversifying your portfolio with some some interesting fund sectors. So if you want to come along along to those, there's still tickets available. Uh, and of course, we'll have have the usual comments, tips, etc., and uh, lots of the personal finance fund section, which they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Ian, and thank you, Harriet. Um, pick up the magazine, dividends versus deficits, four pounds seventy in all good news agents, or go online and subscribe. Thank you very much. See you soon. 